Okay, I think I'm on. Yeah? Great. So, last week, uh, James introduced a sutta, one of the suttas on uh, non-self, anatta, and talked quite extensively about non-self. And as I was, and I was here, I actually came and, and listened and really enjoyed the talk. And um, as I was planning on this evening and thinking about all the different topics that maybe I could bring in to, uh, to talk about with you all, it just seemed really silly <laughs> to move on from Anatta because it's so deep and it's so rich. And one evening exploring this topic is just not enough. Um, so I thought that we could continue this exploration and I'm not going to do too much repeat uh, from James, although I might uh, remind you of a few things that he talked about. There's a few threads, actually, that were within his talk that I'm going to f- bring into this talk, but um, I'd like to bring in different perspectives, not just the one sutta, but uh, several other suttas that address this topic of non-self. And what does this mean The challenge with this, with this topic is that we often come to it with a perspective of what this means, non-self or no-self. And oftentimes this perspective that we have is um, rooted in self, rooted in ego, where we like to try and figure out and untangle this mystery of non-self with a lot of selfing involved. (laughs) We really want to often identify with it, whether or not we have a self or non-self. And of course, that's, that's just our personality, our ego, our selfing that is in need to identify. So it gets really tricky, it gets confusing, but only because it's being seen through this perspective. And so the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of uh, uh, teachers since the Buddha who have been teaching in this lineage challenge this perspective. And they do it in this way that as we listen to their teachings, it almost sounds like they're contradicting themselves in a way. I want to read you something. Where's my... Yes. This is another sutta. Oops. This is from the Visuddhimagga. When body and mind dissolve, they do not exit anywhere any more than musical notes lay heaped up anywhere. When a lute, which is a stringed, an ancient stringed instrument, 
um, almost like a very, very small guitar. Uh, when a lute is played, when a lute is played upon, there is no previous store of sound. And when the music ceases, it does not go anywhere in space. It came into existence on account to the structure and stem of the lute and the exertion of the performer. And as it came into existence, so it passes away. In exactly the same way, all the elements of being, both uh, corporal or bodily and non-bodily, come into existence after having been non-existent. And having come into existence, it passes away. He's talking about the present moment. Our existence is only in the moment. Our experiences, they come and they pass away, constant, just rapid fire, all of these different experiences. What is it that's happening that we can really hold on to and say, this is me, this is me, now this is me, this is me. (laughs) Of course, we don't do it like that. We have this perspective that uh, because we have this illusion of time, that this body, this form, these mental formations, there's something constant about it, solid about it. And he's saying this isn't really true when you start to investigate it. There is no self residing in the body and mind. There is no self in the body and mind. But the corporation of the products of what people, of of the skandhas, uh, which James talked about last week, so form, uh, vedana, which is our, our categorizing of the experience being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, perception, Mental formation, which is our thoughts, our emotions. Uh, and then consciousness itself, just being conscious. He's saying that all of these things, we, we see them and we somehow have this misunderstanding that somehow they are self. And he's saying this isn't true. Paradoxical though it may seem, There is a path to walk on, meaning this uh, eightfold path. There is walking being done, but there is no traveler. There are deeds being done, but there is no doer. There is blowing of the air, but there is no wind that does the blowing. The thought of self is an error, and all existence are as hollow as the plantain tree. I'll say something about that in a moment. As hollow as a plantain tree and as empty as twirling water bubbles. So I spent some time in Southeast Asia, and I spent some time uh, in a monastery down in in the southern region uh, uh, where a demonstration was given where they took us to a plantain tree, which a banana tree, that had been chopped in half. And you could see very clearly that here was this tree, this uh, um, 
tree that had been cut in half, and instead of a hardwood where you would see the rings and the hardwood all the way to the center of the tree, uh, there was actually nothing in the middle of it. So the, the way that a banana tree grows is actually in these layers of, I guess, foliage uh, that comes up and it creates this illusion of, of a tree. But in fact, um, there's nothing in the middle of it. There's nothing there. It's empty. So this is kind of confusing. So how can there be the banana tree and yet there's nothing at the center of it? How can there be this human sitting up here or you're sitting there? How can we be here and yet we're being told that it's empty of self? This doesn't seem to make sense. And so these teachings really challenge our perspective. It challenges what we know. It challenges our mind that so wants to understand this concept. And so this evening what I thought we would do is take it a little bit out of the um, mental experience of non-self and bring it more into an experiential knowing of non-self to try to demystify what he's talking about. And so to begin, I'd like us actually to interact a little bit by turning towards one other person. Um, so go ahead and do this now. Just turn. It's okay if you know them. It's okay if you don't. Uh, but turn towards one person. And if there's a group of three, that's okay. But preferably, there's just uh, the two of you. Okay, This is going to be a very short and simple exercise, but you might turn and introduce yourself if you don't know each other already. Okay. So we're going to explore this contra- what seems to be a contradiction. I'm going to read this last part again. There is a path to walk on, there is a walking being done, but there is no traveler. There are deeds being done, but there is no doer. There is blowing of the air, but there is no wind that does the blowing. So, what I'd like you to do is, uh, in this dyad, I'd like you to answer the question, I am, and then... What? You get to fill in the blank. And the way this will work is that one person will say, I am, blah, blah, blah. And then the next person will say, I am, blah, blah, blah. And then it'll go back and forth, back and forth until I ring the bell. Okay? And that'll be our first exercise. All right, so you can turn towards your partner. Quickly decide who's going to begin. And you'll just ping pong back and forth answering I am. Okay, go ahead. It doesn't, adjectives or nouns, whatever comes up. There's no right or wrong. Okay. 
Don't go too far from your partner because there's one more. Okay, so I am answering that question. It probably wasn't that difficult. Uh, now I'd like you to answer or complete the sentence, I am not, and then fill in the blank. I am not. So working in the same way, uh, going back and forth, ping pong back and forth, and I'll ring the bell when it's over. Okay? And you can begin. So out of curiosity, how many of you ended up repeating what you are and what you are not, coming up with the same things and the same for, for each topic? Or did you come up with completely different things? Completely different things. Maybe we can uh, hear a little bit. Will someone pass? Yeah, great. Um, what What was it that you came up with that was maybe surprising or unexpected um, or just what was that like for you? Maybe we could get a few people to to share a bit. We came up with I am blossoming. Uh-huh. So nice. Yeah. I am blossoming. Yeah. And you felt that. I can see it. Yeah, that's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Yeah, in the back. I, um, sometimes I wanted to stop the exercise and connect in a conversation way. Uh-huh. When my partner said, I am something. And mm-hmm. I could tell it was... It seemed true and seemed of the moment. Yeah. And I wanted to connect then. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I know. These these diet exercises, they don't leave a lot of room for, for that type of connection. We're connecting in a different way. But um, thank you for sharing that, that that was your reaction to it. And, uh, maybe you can connect a little bit later. Yeah. Well, I found that um, the I am's were were much easier than the I am not. Uh huh. Because yeah. because Why every is time, that? <laughs> well, every time I would in the beginning, every time I would think of an I am not, uh, I thought, well, and I was tending to think of a- adjectives as opposed to nouns. Yeah. Um, I kept thinking, well, I I can't totally rule that out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Until I came to, uh, and this was more of a, I guess an adjective, I am not a Republican. (laughs) That felt right. (laughs) You felt very sure about that. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. So there's all these different ways in which we identify. And then when we start to pick it apart and start to see, you know, not only question what am I, but throw in the opposite or the seemingly opposite of what am I not? And in both questions, I think what you probably found was uh, a lot of the things that you came up with were in some way a way that you identify as who you are, either who you 
are are or who you are not. This is how we construct our, our world. The world inside of us, the world around us, uh, are these ideas of I am this and I am that and I am not this. We're doing this all the time. We're constantly doing this and it's, it's a deeply rooted habit. And it's, it's not a bad thing. In fact, there's something really important about having a strong sense of self. The Buddha knew who he was. He was very confident. When somebody would ask him who he was, uh, his response, I am awake. He didn't have to think about that. He knew that was true. He was confident in that. There were many times when people would come and challenge what he knew and who he was, challenge him uh, being the enlightened one, and he stood very strong in what he knew, very confident, self-assured. So this healthy sense of self is important psychologically. We, We need that in order to be balanced in our life. And we actually need a healthy sense of self to even begin to uh, let go of the clinging to the things we identify. It's actually a very important part of the process. So a lot of the times we come to this practice and what we do first is heal. Most of us don't come to this practice and just let go of self. (laughs) We first come to this practice and we heal. We become whole. We become more confident in our practice and who we are. This is is part of the process of awakening. And so how does that work then with this idea of non-self? And James talked about this, uh, that when we start to really understand non-self, we realize that it's not just about um, believing that we don't matter or we're not really here. There is that perspective, and actually, uh, science, the more and more we're finding out what, through science, um, well, actually, this isn't even new information, uh, this understanding that we are mostly space, empty space. So we're we're filled with billions, I forget the number, it's like an octillion, uh, uh, seven octillion atoms, I think that might be right, Um, within our body, within this structure that we call ourselves. And within each atom, there's a nucleus. But the size of that nucleus is teeny. So if this whole room was an atom, the nucleus, in theory, would not even be visible to our naked eye. That's amazing. And so what's left around it is space. That's what we're made of. So in that way, we can start to deconstruct what we call solid mass and start to see that's not actually true. We are here but what is, what is actually here? Most of it is this, this space. I was reading today 
And I'd read this before, and I, I just find it so amazing that um, what we perceive as solid mass is actually uh, the electrodes or the energy within the atoms uh, repelling each other. So your body on the cushion right now, it feels like you're making contact. But the reality is you're not. Isn't that wild? <laughs> you're actually, the, the, your cushion and your bottom are repelling each other. And there's this feeling of contact. But there is an actual contact. That's mind-blowing. So we are this space and this energy. Okay. That's not very functional, is it, to walk around thinking, I'm just space, I'm just energy. It'd be pretty hard to, you know, order your latte in the morning and get on BART. <laughs> that was your only perspective. So that's, that's part, part of that is true. And then here we are. We are uh, this formation uh, of bodily sensation, of mass. We are a um, variety of mental formations, thoughts, emotions, perspectives. And then we are this consciousness here. But we're not any one thing, are we? I was uh, driving out to Danville yesterday, and I have to make this drive often. And as you go through the tunnel, the Caldecott Tunnel, and you come out, uh, the, at some point, soon after, the hills part, and there's Mount Diablo. And you drive for some, some distance with that in the foreground. Uh, and I love this scenery. I love this drive down the 24. And I've hiked Mount Diablo quite a bit, um, up it, around it. I'm pretty familiar with that mountain. And so from a distance, I can look at it and know that that's Mount Diablo. There's a mountain there. But when I'm hiking on it, I have a completely different perspective. It's not just Mount Diablo anymore. I can call it that, but actually what it is is a lot of dirt and rock and plant life. It's animals. It's all sorts of things, footprints, dust, uh, all of this creating what we call Mount Diablo. And so we're the same thing. Oftentimes, we just see ourselves as this mass, and we really identify with this mass. Or we really identify with our mental conditioning in this moment. But actually, we are... That's, it's actually really limiting <laughs> to just say, it's Mount Diablo, and to keep that perspective once you get close up and completely miss the magic of what makes Mount Diablo, as well as just the magic of what makes you and me, all these different pieces. There's some beautiful practices within the Satipatthana Sutta, um, which is about the four foundations of mindfulness, these ways in which we can start to deconstruct 
what it is we call self and what it is we call our experience. And so within this body of teachings, there's a number of them uh, deconstructing the physical form. And so one is looking at the 32 parts of the body and, and really seeing the body in all of its pieces, from hair to flesh, teeth, nails, uh, the organs, it just, the muscles, the bones, starts to deconstruct what it is that we call ourselves. But we don't think of ourselves in this way very often. Uh, Same with the mind, starting to really see what it is that is happening, that we are maybe so um, connected to, I know that in my family, um, we have a tradition of competitiveness. (laughs) And it is so amazing when, and I'm one of three siblings, and when one of us has an idea and we then go share it with everybody else, um, and maybe I had that same idea, we'll spend some time working out whose idea it really was. (laughs) There can be such attachment to, that was mine. It's just an idea. It's just a thought. I mean, the thought came and went. It's not even here anymore. But we could could really talk it out for, for a good amount of time. In the meantime, we're not even going forward with the idea. We're just spending time on whose idea it was. So I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but um, it's really amazing what we can identify with and call ourselves, call ours. This body, James called it uh, the mind, what did he call it? Hold on. It was so good. The mind, body... I didn't write it down, huh? Yeah, the mind-body process. That was it. I was thinking verb. That we are this. We are a verb. We in in this culture and in our language, we refer to each other in nouns and pronouns. But actually, what we are is a verb. <laughs> Verbs. This mind-body process, constantly changing. Never the same in any one moment. Constantly changing. That's amazing. And yet, we don't really see ourselves that way. We have this illusion of time that we're kind of just all this, it's all the same and nothing's really happening. <laughs> Ever have that? I just had someone ask me, well, you know, what's going on in your life? Mm, nothing really. But actually, it's constantly changing. It's constantly changing in our bodies, in our minds, and then in our external world, and how we're even perceiving the external world. Constantly changing. And so what part of that is a solid self? Where in all of that constant change, and uh, as we deconstruct what is actually here, what can we point towards and say, this is my constant self. We come up empty. It's why this this subject of self 
can be so painful. It's why we get stuck in this cycle of dukkha. We feel this friction with life because we're constantly trying to cling or hang on to something that we can't even grasp. There's nothing there to hold on to. And yet we spend a lot of energy trying to pin down, this is who I am. (laughs) Or, this is mine. And the moment we say that, of course, it's all changed. It's different. And so, because we're not in alignment with the truth, we end up experiencing the friction of dukkha as opposed to the fluidity of being in the stream of how things are. And we've experienced both. I know for myself, uh, I went through a period of time, and in, in m- some of this was just age, um, where I was really determined to identify with something. It didn't really matter what it was. It could be anything. And for some time, I was really identified as a Buddhist practitioner. Uh, you could say I was a bit of a born-again Buddhist. Really annoying. <laughs> I'm sure I was very annoying to be around because I was so identified with it. It was who I was. And that felt somehow comforting. The reason we do this is there's something comforting about solidity and constancy. Somehow we find a lot of comfort in that, as if it, we suddenly realized everything was moving and changing and nothing is staying the same, that suddenly we would just dissolve into nothingness, that the ground would in fact disappear and there would just be nothing left. So we have this idea that this is what would happen. And so there's something kind of soothing about this is, this is who I am. And so I did this for some time. And... Um, and even at times uh, acted in ways that n- now, from my perspective, I see there was just a ton of ego. A lot of ego, big ego, big personality stuff that was really covering my insecurity, covering my fear of really not knowing who I was. And so I was compensating with being somebody, really needing to be somebody. Well, someone pointed this out to me. Uh, a really dear person whom I trust very much pointed this out in a very gentle way and, and showed me that there was a lot of conceit in the way that I was behaving. And it was interesting. It was at a time when I could really hear that. It wasn't just something that was thrown at me. It was a time where I was actually asking for that type of information because I was starting to feel that friction. Something wasn't really quite right. I was doing all the right things. You know, I was sitting in the right way. I looked the part. (laughs) Really great mindfulness practitioner. But there was, it was all ego. My practice was, you know, filled with anxiety and my mind was tense and my body was anxious. And, you know, so the two weren't in alignment. And so this was pointed out to me. Well, I, was, I had this knee-jerk reaction of disgust. Oh, I can't believe I've been acting in this way. 
kind of this disenchantment with the way that I was clinging and creating this, this big, big self. And I, I went into the opposite direction of really um, putting myself down. And now I felt really insecure <laughs> and felt like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not good at this. I don't know what, who I am. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And so you can see in both big ego, small ego, it's still just a lot of selfing going on. You can see how greed, ha- hatred, delusion, all, it's, it's woven into this fabric of selfing. It's just very confused. A lot of wanting, a lot of not wanting. Right? So that's when you know there's selfing involved. And then I had this moment. It's still very, very clear to me. And this was after practicing with this selfing for some time. It was, it was about two years where this was um, a highlight of my practice, really taking a look at, at self. And there was this moment where I was out in a field, and I had been practicing pretty intensely, and was kind of sick of it, <laughs> feeling discouraged and not enough, can't do this. Uh, and there I was, sitting in this field, and I just started noticing there were crickets, uh, there was wind that was blowing through the grass, which was pretty dry at the time. It was in the winter time, back east. And... Uh, it just hit me all of a sudden that as I was sitting there, I felt grounded, I felt present, I felt connected with the simpleness of what was happening in that moment. I wasn't adding anything to it. In that moment, there was no self. And I don't mean to make it sound simplistic, but in a way... It was like a cosmic joke, how simple it was. I saw just how much I had been adding to the truth of how things are. And in that moment, there was nothing needed to be added. There was no no reason to even contemplate self. This is from uh, a commentary from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who is uh, addressing a sutta that James mentioned last week about a wanderer who came to uh, the Buddha and sat down very respectively. And as he was waiting for the, the Buddha's teaching, he turned to him and he said, Hey, is there self? And the Buddha didn't respond at all. And the guy kind of sat there and waited, and then he leaned over again and said, okay, is there no self? And the Buddha didn't answer. He didn't say a word. And so the wanderer just kind of sat there for a little while, and then because there was no response, he finally got up and he left. And so Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, uh, went to the Buddha just after the wanderer had left and said, 
why didn't you say anything? And the Buddha's response was basically that because the question was coming from this place of selfing, he wanted to know, he wanted to identify with whether it was self or non-self, there was no answer that would have been correct in that moment. If he said, yes, there is a self, then he would have had this idea that there was this eternal self, this non-changing being, this or soul here. If he had said, no, there's no self, then there would be this idea that there was uh, nothing here, um, that it was just pure emptiness and nothing else. And so the understanding wouldn't be complete. And so this is a uh, commentary from Tanisaro Bhikkhu on this, this happening of the Buddha not responding to whether there is self or no self. If you develop the path of virtue, concentration, and discernment to a state of calm well-being and use the calm state to look at experience in terms of the noble truths, the questions that occur in the mind are not, is there a self? What is myself? But rather, the questions end up being, am I suffering stress or Am I suffering because I'm holding on to this particular phenomenon? Is it really me, myself, or mine, this stress, this suffering, dukkha? If it's stressful, but not really me or mine, why hold on? The last questions merit straightforward answers as they then help you to comprehend stress or or dukkha and to chip away at the attachment and clinging, the residual sense of self-identification. That cause, uh, identification that cause it, until ultimately all traces of self-identification are gone, and all that's left is limitless freedom. So when we truly understand non-self, we're not asking, is there self, is there no self? we realize that that's not that important. It's, am I clinging in a way to this being, to this self that's causing suffering? Am I causing friction with how things are because I'm holding on somehow? He goes on to say, in this sense, the anatta teaching is not a doctrine of no self but a not-self strategy for shedding suffering by letting go of its cause, leading to the highest undying happiness. At that point, questions of self, no-self, and not-self fall aside. Once there's an experience of such total freedom, where would there be any concern about what's experiencing it, or whether or not itself? So this is really interesting that this whole 
contemplation around, is there a self, is there not a self? It's not the right question. It's not the right question. We just end up getting tangled in it anyway. It just becomes more and more confusing. And so the question is, am I creating suffering right now because I'm holding on to something? Am I creating some kind of disconnect because I'm holding so dearly to something that actually isn't mine or isn't really here or isn't true? This is relevant. This is how we start to bring this into our practice. This is what I experienced in this field, just the simplicity of no longer fighting experience, no longer adding my own selfing to what was already here. And what's left is a feeling of peace, a feeling of embodiment, a feeling of presence. I didn't disappear <laughs> into the ethers, which sometimes it feels like it, that, that might be what happens when we really explore this non-self. But that's not it at all. There's something deeper that's understood. There's a shedding of this idea that we have of self. A letting go of that idea of what is self. And then what's left. And so, I think I'll, I'll finish with um, the Metta Sutta, which speaks directly to all of this. And as I read it, what I'd like you to do, I'm just going to read a portion of it. Um, and what I'd like you to do is close your eyes and explore each line within yourself and just see what it is, where, how you connect with it or not connect with it. See what's true for you. The nature of form, this body, is empty. And emptiness is form. The nature of form is empty. And emptiness is form. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. That which is form is empty. That which is emptiness is form. Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, emotions, thoughts, and consciousness are also like this. The nature of consciousness is emptiness, and emptiness is consciousness. 
Consciousness is not different from emptiness, and emptiness is not different from consciousness. That which is conscious is empty. That which is emptiness is consciousness. These dharmas are marked with emptiness, neither arising nor ceasing, neither tainted nor pure, neither increasing nor decreasing. Talking about the truth of emptiness is neither increasing, decreasing, arising, ceasing, tainted or pure. Therefore, in emptiness, there is no form, no feelings, no perceptions, no mental formations, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, taste, or touch, no realm of eye, and so on, and up to no realm of mind consciousness, no ignorance, and no extinction of ignorance, and so on, up to no old age and death, and also no extinction from old age and death, no suffering, no origin of suffering, no end to suffering, no path, no wisdom, and no attainment. Notice what your ego does with that information. No end of suffering, no origin of suffering, no path, no wisdom, no attainment. With nothing to attain, the bodhisattva depends on perfect wisdom and their minds are without any hindrance. Without any hindrance, no fears exist. Far removed from uh, perverted thought, they are awake. All the Buddhas in the past, present, and future depend on this perfect wisdom in attaining their unsurpassed, complete, and perfect awakening. Therefore, known, uh, known this perfect wisdom is the great mantra, is the bright, bright mantra, is the surpassed mantra. It goes on to say that this mantra is gate gate paragate parasamgate bodhiswaha, going beyond, going beyond, going far, far beyond, far, far beyond our small or big ego understanding of what's actually here right now, what is actually true. So you can open your eyes. The way that these suttas are structured is to not meant to confuse the mind necessarily, but to give it this impression of nowhere to land so that we can begin to be more and more comfortable with this idea of nowhere to land. If I'm not this, and I'm not that, and I'm not this, then what the heck am I? And right now, right here, you can feel yourself sitting here. 
can feel your breath going in your body. You can hear my voice. Just this form sitting here, taking in information, having some perspective and perception. You're conscious right now. You're not asleep. There's thoughts, maybe some emotion. It's just that simple. Nothing else is needed to be added. Just this. So, we have a little bit of time. Uh, I'd love to hear if you have any questions on this topic. Um, We can pass the mic around. It just helps for those of us who are not able to hear so well. And also, since this is recorded, it's nice to have that on the recording. And any questions about non-self or maybe uh, needing some clarification or maybe you'd like to share something as far as your relationship with non-self? I'm just kind of curious because the sutta said that there was no end to suffering, but then what you said earlier was the way to look at the no-self was to look at what was making dukkha in your life. So why does the sutta then say there's no suffering if that's (laughs) the point that you're supposed to investigate the no-self? Yeah. The idea, my understanding of the the sutta, which... um, This is just speaking from my own limited personal uh, knowledge. But my understanding of the purpose of the sutta is to create the field of uh, the experience of no self, the experience of uh, nothing to hold on to as self including our attachment to uh, suffering or non-suffering and our attachment to being the one who will end the suffering or be the one who will not end the suffering. Um, so this, this sutta is constructed in a way to help uh, facilitate the letting go of, of all of that. Um, it's true. It's contradictory to the teachings of the Buddha that there, for its noble truth, there is suffering. (laughs) There is suffering in this world. And there's a reason for it. And that's because there's this, this cause that we cling. And there's a way to relieve it. And yet, if we identify it and, uh, do this path as a self, with our selfing. Um, All we are doing is just adding more attachment and more clinging. And so I think that's what the sutta is pointing to, is that even that we have to let go of our identification with it, as if we are we, I, me, (laughs) are somehow doing this rather than this mind-body process. Uh, 
Does that make sense? Okay. Is there another question? Yeah, hi me. <laughs> I see you shaking your head. Yeah, yeah. this is this is tough. Um, <laughs> it seems rather complicated uh, about it all, but if we have all these experiences coming in, and we have an education that's coming in and, or passing yeah. through us, um, but there aren't they stored somewhere that we could use and um, and live live with, or maybe that's not it. But um, so instead, and if we don't do that, if we don't capture them or keep them, then we're completely empty. And so, is that? Yeah. That's, I mean, I it's hard to understand. There is there is mental formation. There's memory. We have thought. We have emotions. Yes, yes, we do. There is there is mental formation, and you can question yourself as you identify with it. Is this? You know, is this memory of me that happened, you know, maybe even just yesterday, or maybe it was years ago, um, in this very moment, is it, is it I? Is it this solid sense of self? When I cling to it and attach to it in this way, without seeing the fluidity of ever-changing experience and, and mind-body process, when I cling to it instead, does it create suffering? Most likely, yes. That's all. Just taking away that extra layer of eh, me, mine, my bad experience that happened when I was a child or uh, my success that I'm experiencing right now. So, or whatever it is for you. You know, where are we where are we clinging? Where are we attached? You can kind of uh, I had this great image as I was thinking about all of this of uh, Wiley Coyote. <laughs> Remember that the from the old cartoons where he'll be chasing the Roadrunner and Roadrunner will go up uh, a ladder and it just kind of goes up into the ethers. And suddenly, for whatever reason, the roadrunner disappears and all you see is the coyote uh, climbing up this ladder and he's so um, uh, obsessed with catching the roadrunner that as he's climbing, he doesn't realize that there's no longer a ladder there. But he's still reaching and actually grabbing onto the, the, the runs, the, 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 the ladder. And... That's kind of what we do. There's no longer anything there, and yet we're still going like this, hanging on to it. And then, of course, because it's not really there, we end up really suffering because at some point, uh, just like the coyote suddenly realizes, you know, darn, I'm (laughs) I'm not holding on to anything, and falls. Uh, kind of the same thing where we're holding so tightly to nothing that's actually there. We're so identified with it that as it naturally 
disappears or we come to realize it's not there anymore, it's so painful. It can be so painful. Oh, it's changing. Oh, it's, it's this. Oh, now I'm that. I thought I really had a handle on this, but oh, there it is. Uh, I thought I was over that. I thought I wasn't that anymore. So it becomes a real root of, of our suffering. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Okay, well, we're at time. So my hope is that in some way this demystified the non-self and didn't add more confusion um, and I encourage you to continue exploring this topic. As James said last week, understanding non-self is, leads to an awakening. It leads to awakening. So just focusing and understanding non-self uh, is a tremendous practice, very powerful practice. And so to continue questioning this perspective of, of, of I, mine, me. And uh, so we'll dedicate this time and this um, practice, dedicating the merit, which is a long-standing tradition and is probably being done in many different places all over the world right now in this tradition where we acknowledge the importance of this practice and acknowledge the goodness of spending time together in this way and also acknowledge that it's not just about us. (laughs) It's not just about self. That we do get to benefit from this but that somehow us and our own personal benefit is small compared to um, the benefit of all beings and that we don't really know how this practice ripples out from our own understanding out into the world as we interact with others, as we talk about this with others. Um, And so we dedicate this practice and our time together to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be free from their suffering and their clinging. May all beings everywhere see the true nature of self and find everlasting peace and happiness in this truth. So thank you for your attention.